Luke chapter 2. Now, you want to know how cool God is? Um, the music team could not have known this, but um, a song that has been uh, blowing up on my iPhone and my um, iTunes that I've been playing incessantly, my kids are getting sick of it, um, is Before the Throne of God Above. Um, you wouldn't even know, they couldn't know that it's actually in my sermon notes uh, that we'll be talking about this morning. So um, that was just a very comforting message to God, to me today, um, that uh, we stand before the throne of God above and we have a strong and perfect plea. Our great high priest, whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for us. Okay, in Luke chapter 2, um, Pastor Doug has had the opportunity to work us through the first three chapters of Matthew, and then I'm going to get a story that's going to come after the birth of Jesus, and it's the story of these two people, Simeon and Anna. And unless you are very um, astute in Scripture, you probably have never heard these people's names because they're actually only mentioned once in Scripture, uh, and once in this time in, in, in Luke chapter 2. Would you read with me in Luke chapter 2, verse 22 and following? It says, and when the time had came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens, first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, who is the they that they're talking about here? And the they that they're talking about is Joseph and Mary. Now, I don't know how many of you are first-time parents, but I can remember, I've had three children, and I, I can remember the very first time we, have, uh, we had our daughter, Abby, who you just prayed for. I, I can remember when we found out that Amy was pregnant, and I'll tell you the fear that went over me about, am I going to be a, a good father? I can't even imagine being a good father. And I'm sure the fears that Amy had of being a good mom, it's probably some of the exact same fears that you've had. Some of the exact same fears that all of us have had. We fear this fear that I, I want to give this child an opportunity to have a loving and gracious home. I want to give them protection and comfort. And I also want to see them come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. We want to protect them. We want to nurture them. How much doubt and insecurity must they have felt? How much doubt and insecurity do we feel? But think about this. They're not only bearing a child for the first time, but they're bearing the God-man. They're bearing a perfect child. They're bearing the very Son of God. I can't even imagine. This must have been so overwhelming to them from a human perspective. But what we find in the life of Joseph and Mary are two people who were utterly faithful to God. They, they, kept, they were keepers of the law, and even down to what we just read here, they were following Old Testament scripture when it came to the birth of a new child. Five times in the passage that we're going to read, we're going to find that the law of the Lord is mentioned. So they knew the law, they followed the law, they obeyed the law because they trusted in the God who wrote the law. And is that you, and is that me? So in this section, what we find is that Jesus was brought to the temple. Just prior to this, if you look back with me in verse 21, look back, it says this, at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus and given the name by the angels who was, you know, when he was conceived in the womb. 
Okay, now there are three rites that are occurring here, three rituals. The first one is the ritual of circumcision, and this occurs eight days after a young man is born. And what happens is this is for all generations, for all people. It was even true for the domestic, uh, domestic servants in Israel. Every male child at eight days old would have to be circumcised. Usually it was done with a flint life, knife, and it was done by the father. It wasn't done in any specific place. It could be done in the home and no special place, but it was usually done by the father. And by doing this, it was an outward sign that they had a relationship with God, circumcision. So that was the first rite that they followed. The second rite is this rite of childbirth. I won't get too far into it, but what occurred is this. Anytime there was a, um, uh, a, a passing of type of fluid in our bodies, you were viewed as ceremonially unclean. So a woman, after childbirth, would be viewed as ceremonially unclean for a period of time. Uh, for that period of time, 33 days for a male and a little bit longer, actually double the time for a female child if you had it. And then what would end up happening is that you would come to the temple and you would offer a sacrifice at that time to show a level of humiliation and show a level of purification. So you were to bring a lamb or you were to bring a, some type of um, offering. A lamb, which was one year old, was bought for a, per, um, uh, a burn offering, and a young pigeon or a turtle dove was bought uh, for a sin offering. If you were poor, you could bring two pigeons and two turtle doves. Now look back with me, because that's exactly what um, Joseph and Mary brought here. You see in verse 24, it says, and, the pair, um, and they brought a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. What they were bringing was the sacrifice to be used in this offering, and it was an offering, a sin offering, to say that, you know what, I am a sinner, we are sinners, and we desperately need your salvation. This was brought for purification. Well, there's a third rite that is brought here, and the third rite is found in the fact that they were bringing their child to present him to the Lord. Look back at verse 23, it says this, that every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. So what happened is this, is that um, the first child, the male child, was going to be set apart for God. Now, I don't know if that reminds you of anything, but it reminds us normally of back to Egypt. And you remember the firstborn child, firstborn child of the family was destroyed, only, and the only ones that were protected were those that trusted in God and had placed the blood over the doorpost. This is a reminder, this is a continual sign that the firstborn child is God's. Now, what God did was he brought a group of people called the Levites and that everyone in that line would be part of the priestly line, or at least the firstborn child would be part of the priestly line. So when you have a firstborn son, what you would do is you would bring an offering to God and present that to God as almost though you're ransoming him back from service to the Lord. And that is what is occurring here. So we have three rituals that are occurring. Ritual number one is circumcision. Ritual number two is purification. And then ritual number three is the redemption of the firstborn. Now, what does that have to do with us? We're sitting here in 2014, almost 2015. What does all of this ancient rituals have to do with us? Well, I think the first thing it has to tell us is this. That for our children, our children should be very special to us. We should be protecting them. We should protect them not just physically and not just emotionally, but spiritually. That we should be protecting them by nurturing them and caring for them, but we should also be so concerned that we're laying our children before the Lord, 
praying for, their great, for God's grace and mercy to be upon their lives. That's exactly what Mary and Joseph were doing. They're bringing this child and they're saying, Lord, take care of this child, your child, this child that you've blessed us with. But there's a second thing that I think that this passage teaches us, and it teaches us to the young people that are here. As I look out in the congregation, there are a number of young faces that I see. What does this passage tell you? I think this passage tells you that you were never too young to be used by God. You're never too, be young, too young to be presented to the Lord and to be used in his service. As young as you are, God can use you in amazing ways. There's so many people in the Old Testament, so many people in the New Testament that were young in years, but God did amazing things through their lives. And I think this passage also tells us to all of us that sit here is this, that God calls us to be set apart. He calls us to be humble before him, and he calls us to be looking to his salvation, the one that will change us and the one that will transform us. Look with me in verse 25. It says this. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, I don't know about you, but I struggle with waiting. I can be very impatient. Um, uh, waiting in line. I drive to New York City to go to school and the traffic, as you see all of the red lights in front of you, the brake lights in front of you, it gets very frustrating and annoying, especially when I have something to do. I want to accomplish it and you're blocking my way. But Simeon is this type of man who waited patiently for something. And we're going to talk about what it was that he was waiting for. But before that, we see that Simeon was a man and it was said that he was righteous and devout. You ever wonder what it means when the scriptures say that he was righteous? Does that mean that he was sinless? No, he wasn't sinless. We're all sinners. What Simeon knew was that in his sin, he, turned to, he needed to turn to the only one that was going to care for his sin, the only one that was going to take care of his sin, and the only one that was, was God. And that in his unrighteousness, he could turn to the one that was righteous, and therefore he could be viewed as righteous. And that's exactly what we have today. We are unrighteous in and of ourselves, but we turn to the only one that is righteous so that we could be viewed as righteous in his sight. So Simeon was a man who was righteous, but he was also a man who was devout. Devout is an interesting term. Devout literally means to take hold of well. What Simeon did was this. He was careful when it came to the spiritual matters of life. He was careful about reading his word. He was careful about intimacy with God. He was careful about making God central in his life. All of the other things around him were important, but there was nothing more important than his relationship with God. He was righteous. He was devout, but he was also waiting. And I've already said that I struggle with waiting, and probably a number of you do as well, but he was waiting patiently. For the consolation of Israel. It says in verse 25 that the Holy Spirit was upon him and it was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Can you imagine this promise that the Holy Spirit comes to you and says this, I promise you on my solemn word that you will not take your last breath until you have seen the Messiah. What an incredible word. That every day, Simeon probably woke and said, is this the day that I'm going to see him? Is this the day? We don't know. 
You know, we really don't know much about Simeon. In fact, Simeon is not mentioned anywhere else. And Simeon is a a pretty common name at the time. So it wasn't anything extraordinary about his name. Some people believe that he may have been a priest. Some people may have believed that he may have been a rabbi or even a son of a future rabbi. But we really don't know. We don't even know his age. A number of people conjecture that he is a very old man. We don't know. But what we do know is this. He's righteous. What we do know is that he is devout. And what we do know is this. He waited patiently for God. There's something else that we find out about Simeon that is really interesting to me is that this passage constantly talks about the Holy Spirit in his life. It says here, if you look, it says that the Holy Spirit was upon him. The Holy Spirit was upon this man. It says that the Holy Spirit revealed to him words. It says that the Holy Spirit led him to the temple on that specific day. The Holy Spirit was full in his life. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? You know, you've heard this term before, right? Walk by the Spirit. It says this in Scripture that all of us, all believers, if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have the Holy Spirit in your life. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. There's never a moment in your life where you're not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is living in such a way in your life that you are called to walk. Now, when you think about walking, and as I walk across the platform, what am I doing? I'm making an action, I am moving, and I'm moving in a continual direction. That is what God is saying the Holy Spirit is to be in our lives, that as you're taking step by step habitually throughout your life, what you're going to find is that the Holy Spirit is there with you every step of the way. And the Holy Spirit is not just there with you, he is upon you, and he's not just upon you, that for those that are filled by the Holy Spirit, this special time where God is so controlling your life that he is controlling what you think, controlling what you believe, and controlling the actions of your life. You will either be controlled by the Holy Spirit or you'll be controlled by something else. And the Holy Spirit is desirous to control you and to lead you in a way that's going to bring honor and glory to his name. The Holy Spirit is the chief agent of regeneration. He provides eternal security. He is the assurer. He performs this lifelong process of transformation in your life. He enlightens us. He empowers us. He encourages us. He is transforming people so that they look more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his mission. He is like the great potter working this clay so that you and I look like Christ. Well, that's the Holy Spirit that is living in Simeon's life. Do you think it was by mistake that on that day, out of all the days, that he comes to the temple and sees this baby? Is Jesus the only baby that is being presented on that day? Absolutely not. There may have been tons of babies. Why is it this one child on this one day that he picks out to be the Son of God? Because the Holy Spirit shows him. And he's led by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, if you know Scripture, is also called the Counselor or the Comforter, which is interesting because Simeon is waiting for what? Look here with me. Who is he waiting for? He is waiting for, in verse 25, waiting for the consolation of Israel. What does the consolation of Israel mean? Another way of saying it is comfort, the Comforter of Israel. That what God was going to do is he's going to bring comfort to his people. Comfort that is absolutely needed in this time. 
As I look out at you today, I know from not even asking you that a number of you are going through great turmoil right now, great pain. A number of you are going through great difficulties in life that maybe some people know and some people don't. But I can tell you this, that the one person that does know is God. God knows everything that's happening in your life. God knows every thought, every word, every attitude. God knows every fear that you have. God knows every period of despair. He knows everything that you're tempted to be disillusioned about. And God is there because he wants to pour his comfort upon you. He wants to pour that consolation upon you. That is the consolation that Simeon is waiting for. It's not just a comfort from external things and physical things. It is a comfort on the greatest spiritual level. Eternal. Life eternal. Can you flip back with me for a couple of passages in Isaiah? In Isaiah chapter um, 49, God uses this word comfort so oftentimes in this book, over and over and over again. In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 13, it says this, Sing for joy, O heaven, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, for singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on the afflicted. That God wants to provide a comfort to you, and that comfort that he provides should produce such a level of joy and praise in our lives because of all that he has done. Jump with me to Isaiah chapter 51, verse 12. Isaiah 51, verse 12. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who has made grass, and have forgotten the Lord your maker? God kind of doubles up here. He says, I, I am the one that's going to provide you comfort. He is just reminding you, God, God is your comforter. Look with me in verse chapter 57, verse 18. In 57, 18. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Once again, God is looking down on the the pain that we have and the discomfort that we have. And he's basically saying that the deeper the grief, the greater the comfort that he will provide. How about Isaiah chapter 61? Last one. In Isaiah 61, this is a very familiar verse to a number of us. It says, the spirit of the Lord God, verse 1, is upon me. This is a messianic verse. Because he has anointed the Lord, I'm sorry, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the open in the prisons to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our Lord, and to comfort all those who are mourning. This book of Isaiah was written to a number of people that are under great captivity. They are getting ready to be overwhelmed by a foreign army. They're going to lose their temple. They're going to lose their homes. The walls of their lives are going to be broken down. And what God is saying is that you are going to suffer this because of your sin and rebellion. But guess what I'm going to provide for you? That there's a message of hope on the other side. That out of darkness comes light. Out of this despair comes hope. Out of this pain comes peace. 
And what God is providing for us is this, a door of hope. Well, that is what Simeon is looking forward to. And that is what we need to be looking forward to as well. Go back with me to Luke chapter 2. Now, what Simeon has seen is that this young baby was bought and was presented before the Lord. He is telling them that there's comfort coming for all of us that are in grief. And then what he says is this. He takes the baby in his arms, kind of like we do in a dedication. We take the baby in our arms. And he lifted the baby up, and he says he blesses God. He praises God for what God has done for him. He says, Lord, verse 29 now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. It's interesting in verse 28, he blesses God vertically, but then if you jump to verse 34, he blesses Joseph and Mary horizontally. So there's this great blessing that is pouring out of Simeon's life, and he's praising God for this indescribable gift. And then he says this, he says, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. Do you have any idea what that means? I can die. I could die today in peace. Now, I don't know about you, but the vast majority of us, if we heard that today was our last day, it probably wouldn't prompt great joy. It probably would not prompt great, I can die in peace. Are you at a place in your life that if this was your last day, that you could say that I could die in peace because I've seen Christ and I know where I'm going? Simeon could do that. There was no fear. There was no trepidation on his part. Death was not an enemy to him. He was not fearful of it. How? Because he had trusted in the salvation that only God could give. John Calvin, he was a pastor and a theologian back in the 1500s. He made an interesting point. He said this, In the sight of Christ as an infant, that was sufficient for Simeon to approach death cheerfully and confidently. How much more reason should there be for us to live with confidence and peace today since we've not only seen the birth of the Savior, but we've seen his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. We've seen the completion of our salvation that should give us a tremendous advantage over Simeon and therefore an increased responsibility. That if Simeon could die with peace just from seeing the baby Christ, we have seen the end of the story and yet we live in fear and yet we live in dread. And God wants to pour his comfort upon you today. And he wants to remind you of the good news of God's grace and the good news of his mercy and the good news of his love for you. He took this baby up in his arms and he says, I've seen your salvation, which is presented before all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people, Israel. Now, salvation's interesting. Salvation scripturally could be from physical harm or salvation could be spiritual. Israel and most of the people during this time were thinking that God was bringing salvation physically. Even as Isaiah wrote those passages, they were under great turmoil from foreign armies. And when he was, they were hearing this comforting message, they were assuming that God was going to overthrow their enemies. And now, in Jesus' time, they are under Roman bondage. They're assuming that God is going to overthrow Rome through his Messiah. But that's not why God came. 
God didn't come to release us from physical struggles as much as he came to release us from the spiritual struggle. But the great gap that we have is between us and God. The great issue that we have is this. How can we stand before a holy God and know for certain that heaven awaits us? See, the Jewish person believed that they were going to be saved because of their religious heritage. Or they believed that they were going to be saved by their religious duties, the activities that they did. That they were born in the right family, born in the right heritage, or they did the right activities. But that's not why we're saved. We're not saved by the things that we do. We're saved because of one person, one person alone, this baby that Simeon is holding in his arms, the Lord Jesus Christ. So God was not coming here to promise a physical deliverance for Israel. He was coming here to promise a spiritual deliverance that was only bought through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's something else that Simeon tells us, is that this message is not just for Israel. This message is, a, is not just a national hope. This message is a message of hope for every tribe, every tongue, every person in this world. That we have the opportunity to say this message here in Washington, New Jersey. But we have this opportunity to share the same message to the whole world. This great message of one person, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who has come for you, who's lived perfectly for you, and took your sin upon himself. And now, if you trust in him, you could be free. What a great comfort. What a great peace. What a great opportunity there is. This is a message of hope for all people for all times. So what do we see about Simeon? Simeon, he was filled by the Spirit. He, was, he had revelations by the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. He was enlightened by the Spirit. But then Simeon turns his gaze from God and the Son, and then he turns his gaze to Mary and Joseph. Verse 34. And it says, and Simeon blessed them. You remember he blessed God first, and now he's blessing Joseph and Mary. And he says he blessed them, plural, and then it goes that Mary, he said. So now he's saying to Mary and Joseph, I bless you, but then he turns his attention specifically to Mary. Why to Mary? What does he say? Behold, this child is appointed for the falling and rising of many in Israel, and a sign that is to be opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. What, what God is telling us through Simeon is this, that when Christ comes, there's going to be a great division. There's going to be a great division. God, in Christ, is going to create a dividing line. You're either going to trust him or you're not. You're going to yield to him or you're not. You're going to trust in your heritage or you're not. You're going to turn to him as the only one that can save you, or you're going to trust in something else. It's a great division. This principle of the stone in the Old Testament, you remember in the Old Testament where we talked about the stone which the builders rejected becomes the chief cornerstone, a stone of stumbling. They fall over the stone. That's exactly what it is, that Jesus Christ, this little baby, is going to be the stumbling block for so many people today. That when you hear the name of Jesus you will either praise him or curse him. I've often said, you ever find the deity from another religion whose name is used as a curse today? No. They don't curse Buddha. They don't curse Muhammad. They curse Christ. 
And they curse Christ because Christ will either soften us or harden us. We will either turn to him or we will reject him. He becomes a dividing line. There's no neutrality when it comes to Christ. The anticipated Savior, the Messiah, was going to suffer and die for them. And the message of the gospel was either going to be stumbled over or was going to be submitted to. We are going to either rebel against this message or we will repent. We either place our faith and trust in ourselves, our heritage, or our abilities, or we'll renounce all of it and turn to Christ as the only one. There is no neutral ground with him. This special Messiah, this special child, will be the Savior of the world, and it is the only way to be right with God. Just one way. Christ brings division. But the second thing we see is that Christ brings opposition. Opposition. We see that Jesus Christ was a sign to be opposed. A sign is this visible representation of what God was going to do in our lives. And what God was doing was showing himself in Christ, his identity, his divinity, who he really is. And the sign that was given to all of humanity became this sign that was going to be opposed. It was going to create great hostility. And as the Old Testament prophets have been punished and rejected time after time, the great New Testament prophet of Christ would be rejected as well, ultimately on the cross. So he would bring a dividing line. There would be great opposition, but then there would be great pain for Mary. I, I struggle watching my children hurt, as you do. I struggle watching my children in pain, as you do. Can you imagine watching your perfect child accused of the most heinous crimes? Can you imagine going from the popularity that Christ had where he had thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people and now he's down to a handful of women and one disciple before his throne, before the cross? Can you imagine as they ram those nails into his hands and you as a mom are watching them do this to your child? Can you imagine that your son takes his last breath and they ram a spear into his chest? Even as the sword pierced Christ's chest, it must have pierced Mary's as well. Christ was going to bring division. People were going to be opposed to Christ, but Christ was, in his death, was going to great pain for Mary. And I believe that Simeon is looking specifically to Mary because in all likelihood, Joseph's not alive. Joseph's probably gone. We don't hear anything else about Joseph after Jesus is 12 years old. So from the time he's 12 to the time he's 30, sometime in that place, Joseph in all likelihood died. Mary is alone, and she's standing there before the cross watching her son die for her and for us. And I guess all of this points to the fact that salvation is not cheap. The God of glory is not without cost. Life cannot be made well just because God says so. Christ paid an ultimate price to being opposed, being resented, being accused, being blamed, being convicted, being crucified to take away our sin and to bring us into salvation in Christ. That brings us lastly to a woman. Her name is Anna. In verse 36, it says that she was a prophetess, Anna. Daughter of Phanuel, tribe of Asher, she was advanced in her years, and lived as a virgin, and then a widow until she was 84 years old. 
She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and praying night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, I don't know how old Anna is, but we can tell Anna's old. Now, Anna may have been 84 years old, possible, or she may have been even up to over 100 years old. It was not unusual for a young woman, a 13-year-old, to get married. So it is possible that she was about 13 or 14 years old. That's what Mary would have been. And it's possible that uh, Anna was about the same age. And it says that she lived with her husband for seven years. Okay, so now she's about 20 years old. And now she becomes a widow. Her husband dies. And then it says 84 years she lived. So it is possible that she's either 84 years old or she could be even up to 104 years old. She's a very old woman. And as she's living this life, in this time where she's lost everything, she's lost because a woman today, if they lose her husband, they, um, most of our women are educated today. Most have their own jobs. Most have their own opportunities to care for themselves. Back in this culture, that was not the case. That if a woman died, I mean, if a husband died, you were left almost penniless. You had to turn to the church to help you or you would have to get remarried. That could have opened her up to great disillusionment and despair and despondency and hopelessness, but it didn't. What it opened her up to was I'm going to pray to you, God, and I'm going to use what I have now for your glory. And as she is sitting in the temple, what we find her is very faithful. We find her very fruitful. We find her content with her God-ordained place in life. She resisted avoidance and despair and bitterness by trusting in God. And what did she do? She gave all that she had. She had no money, but what she could give is her time. She could give her talents to God. And by doing so, she praised God. And then she shared the good news. Now, Luke doesn't even tell us what she said. But what he did do is this. He put her here for a specific purpose. One writer said that he put her there to say this, that the gospel of God's good grace is not only not national, but universal, but it's also not just for men, it's for women as well. And throughout the book of Luke, you will find oftentimes where you have a man paired with a woman, and the gospel of God's free grace is for every one of us, for all that trust in him. It's this exclusive, exclusive comfort it's this everlasting comfort. It's this emphasized comfort in our lives. So I guess I ask you to consider this. Salvation is not giving us what we want. The Israelites in that time wanted to be free from Rome. God says, no, that's not what I'm giving you freedom from. I'm giving you freedom from sin. Salvation is not external as it is internal. God is not changing the external things in your life as much as he wants to change your heart from the inside out. Salvation is not national, but it's for all people. It's not just American, it's for all the world. Salvation is not about solace, but it is about substance. Salvation is not cheap, but it is costly. There's this hymn that has been running through my head lately, and it says this, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. 
My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart. Or how about this line? When Satan tempts you and me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For now the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, the perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hidden with Christ on high, with Christ my savior and my God. I bet you that that is a hymn that Simeon, I bet you that that is a hymn that Anna could ring out strongly. So we come to a division, a dividing point, a decision place. The Lord has brought you to this valley, to this pit, or to this struggle that you're in, and he wants to bring you to the heights. He wants to help you. He wants to provide healing. He wants to tell you that there's a heaven that awaits you, but that can only come by one person, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only when we perceive our sin and our guilt that we could see our Savior and his grace. Life is this great paradox. The way up is the way down. The low path is the path of height. Broken is the path of healing. The contrite life is the path of rejoicing. Repenting is the path of victory. We have nothing, yet we have all in Christ. There is no crown without a cross. To give is to receive. Lord, I pray 